Welcome. This is Legal Wise with Ted Eccles, a show dedicated to helping you find peace of mind through being well-informed and up-to-date. We want to help you defeat procrastination and provide information on legal matters that matter to you. I'm Ted Eccles, attorney, and you can reach us at LegalWiseGA.com. If you have a legal question, or particularly an estate planning question, go to our website and write to us. We try to address questions that you, our listeners, will find interesting and helpful. You can also join us as part of our free virtual estate planning workshops. To register, give us a call, 770-506-9092, or visit our website at LegalWiseGA.com. We have a great show for you today. We'll answer questions regarding co-executors, contract disputes, car crashes, last will and testament terms, illegal ice cream trucks, and we'll have an interview with a special guest. So let's get started. Christy has a question. She says, my father recently passed away and my mother has called and said she's making a new will. My mom asks if it's a good idea to name both my brother and I as co-executors. What do you think? Well, Christy, I'm sorry to hear that you're experiencing this loss in your family. I know that it is an emotionally challenging time for everyone in your family. A will is a document where a person appoints a manager of their estate, called an executor. An executor is required to determine what properties in the estate to determine the creditors of the estate, to pay those creditors, and then to distribute the net proceeds of the estate to the beneficiaries. Executors have a high responsibility to the estate. They're fiduciaries and can be held personally liable if they abuse their position or cause waste to occur to the estate property. This brings us to the question presented by your mother. In Georgia, Each co-executor can be held liable for the improper actions of the other co-executor. In addition, no action can be taken regarding the estate unless the co-executors act unanimously. These rules can result in a monetary loss for you even if you've done nothing wrong. In addition, you'll be unable to act legitimately unless everyone is in agreement. This can result in a stalemate or delay in action that can result in loss or waste for the estate property. In order to break that stalemate, court action may be required, which can be expensive and time-consuming. So, Christy, while you may get along great with your brother, you'll want to give serious thought to serving as co-executor. For your mother, She may want to consider if her goals could be accomplished by naming one of you as the primary executor and the other as an alternate. There are other options available as well. You'll want to encourage your mother to talk with an experienced lawyer to review all of her options. Thanks for the question, Christy. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, go to LegalWiseGA.com. We have a question from Elisha. He says, I recently found a tractor online and agreed to purchase it. I drew up a contract and typed out the purchase price of $2,000 in words and then typed out the purchase price in numbers. Unfortunately, when I typed the numbers, I typed in 2200 
We both signed it, and the seller is now wanting me to pay the $2,200 instead of $2,000. What's the controlling number? Well, a great question, Elisha. It's unfortunate that this contract dispute has arisen from a simple typing error. Even more so, I know that you're disappointed that the seller's trying to capitalize on this oversight. This contract question is more common than you might think. This same type of error often happens when sellers use pre-printed forms that require the entry of only the selling price. Many times, extra zeros are accidentally added or duplicate numbers are inserted like the extra two in your $2,200 circumstance. It's ironic that the inclusion of this extra detail of requiring the purchase price to be written out in words and in numbers so as to avoid any confusion, is now causing the dispute. Well, thankfully, there are some contract rules of construction that address issues like this. In Georgia, it's a well-settled principle of law that when a contract contains both figures and written words, and there's a discrepancy, the written words will take priority. As a result, Elisha, assuming that there are no other issues with the contract, the written words will likely trump the figures and the price will be as you agreed at $2,000. However, there's another principle that sometimes applies, and it's that any ambiguity in a contract is construed against the person who drafts the contract. In your case, since you drafted the contract, the seller may try to use this argument to say that the discrepancy is actually an ambiguity and that the contract should be construed in his favor. If any of your negotiations are contained in an email, particularly if you have an email that shows the agreed-upon price at $2,000, you may want to use that email to remind the seller of his true agreement. I hope it works out, Elisha and that you get your new tractor. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. Carol has a question for us. She says, A few months ago, I was involved in a car accident. However, I was not driving. I was just a passenger. The accident occurred while I was riding with my friend on our way to eat lunch at a restaurant. My friend was turning right onto a road, and the other car was entering from the opposite lane. The officer didn't write either driver a ticket. Who's responsible for my injuries? How do I recover? Well, that's a great question, Carol. I hope you make a full recovery. A car crash is a classic negligence case, which is sometimes referred to as tort law. In Georgia, where a car crash results in someone getting hurt, the injured party is entitled to recover from the negligent driver. If you are hurt and the crash is your fault, then your injuries are not typically covered by your auto insurance and you will rely on your health insurance to cover your medical bills. However, in your case, as a result of being a passenger, whichever driver is at fault, they're responsible for your injuries. Sometimes both drivers are negligent. And Georgia is a comparative negligent state. With comparative negligence, where the injured party is a passenger like you, she will be required to look to the negligent driver to recover. And if it can be determined that both drivers were negligent, 
then both drivers or their insurance companies will be required to share the responsibility for the damages suffered by the injured party, based on the percentage of negligence attributable to the respective driver. So, Carol, if both parties were at fault, then you will likely recover from both drivers to make you whole. The recovery will be allocated based on the percentage that each driver contributed to the accident. If the parties can't agree, then the issue will likely be determined by a court. Thanks for the question, Carol. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. If you have a legal question, contact us at LegalWiseGA.com. Hey, we're joined today on Legal Wise with Ted Eccles with Justin Neal. He's an endurance athlete, an Ironman, and he enjoys spending time with his wife and three boys. He's founded and runs a financial planning firm that partners with Northwestern Mutual. He's got a team of eight people that love serving families. Welcome, Justin, to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. Thanks, Ted. Hey, thanks for joining us today for some important topics. We cover a lot of estate planning related issues on Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. What is the value of using life insurance as part of your estate planning? Well, Ted, when we visit with families, I'm most interested in their living goals. What do you want to do for the people that you love? And what resources do you have available today? And what future capacities are you going to have tomorrow in order to make your dreams come true for the people you love? And the way I see life insurance is that it is a dream completion tool at your death. So for most families we meet with, they are going to have something that is unfinished when they pass away. And for those people who have unfinished work, life insurance creates instant estate capital at time of death to fulfill those things that they wanted to accomplish for the people they care most deeply about. And that's why I love life insurance. It's a remarkable tool because as I get a sense of what are your living goals, even if you die unexpectedly, we have a solution tool right here that's going to make sure those things can be carried forward even in your absence. Yeah, that's, I so appreciate that approach to, to uh, thinking about life insurance because with the state planning, that's where I begin also is, is what is the goal that we're trying to accomplish for you? How do you want to bless those that you love and what's important to you? I think that's a great place to start. How about disability insurance? When When's a good time to start thinking about disability insurance and who is it um, a good tool for? This is, it's such an interesting insurance solution in that it's the one solution that I cannot buy enough of for me personally. Because the insurance companies say, look, if Justin gets sick or hurt, we want him motivated to get back to his work. We don't want him to just lounge around being more comfortable not working than he was before. So they want to create an incentive financially for me to re-engage with work, which means they do not want to replace all of my current income, let alone the potential for my income to grow. So if I get disabled now, not only do I 
lose income in the, this year, but I lose the potential for my income to grow. So the insurance companies are motivated to replace less of my income if I get sick or hurt than what I'm currently earning. So I encourage families, buy as much of it as you can, as fast as you can. It's relatively inexpensive, and you are never going to get enough to replace your full income. It's certainly most important, Ted, and I know you're pointing in this direction, which I think is exactly right. It's way more important early in life where you have all those future potential years. Your, your most valuable asset is your ability to go to work for almost everyone in the economy. And certainly younger people who are just starting into their careers, they have so much potential. Protect it then. And as you age, you may find, look, I've got enough assets that if I got disabled, I could just retire. Well, then you probably should reevaluate your disability insurance planning. And maybe you don't need as much or you may not need it at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like both, both uh, life insurance and disability insurance are, in a lot of ways, you're thinking about replacing your income for the benefit of not only you, but maybe your family also. Well, there's another kind of insurance I want to talk about before our time runs out, and that is long-term care insurance. You know, more and more, um, it seems like ever an ever-increasing ever percentage of people are going to need long-term care at some point during their life. So how important is it to think about long-term care insurance? Well, the statistics, you're right, Ted, about 70% of us are predicted to one day need some form of long-term care. Uh, and I'm always reminded of a story I, uh, from a client of mine who came in and he said, Justin, I'm going to buy some of that long-term care insurance. And I said, well, that's, that's interesting. I hadn't really talked to you about it, but why do you want it? And he said, well, it's because I had to go down to Florida last week because um, mom and dad were in a car wreck. And I said, well, tell me about that. He said, yeah, my dad's always been the guy to drive them around everywhere until a couple of years ago. And he had some vision problems. So he's considered legally blind and he's no longer allowed to drive, doesn't have a driver's license. And he said, I found out they, they literally drove the car over a sidewalk and crashed into a building. And I'm thinking, man, that's a, that's a terrible story. Like, this is awful. And he says, yeah, here's the kicker. You know who was driving? My dad. I said, you're kidding. He goes, no. He goes, mom would sit next to him and give him instructions on what to do. And he would just drive blind. He's over there driving and they can't see. Mm. And I said, okay, well, connect the dots. How does this connect to long-term care? And he says, well, because Justin, they've been so resistant for us putting care and help in their home or helping them be in a place where they could receive care because they did not want to spend the inheritance they plan to leave the kids and grandkids. And they were so resistant to receiving care. And he said, I'm not going to end up like my dad. He said, it's inevitable. I will be a hard-headed, stubborn old man. I know that's coming. But I don't want to think of receiving long-term care as stealing from my, my daughters and their future children. I want to think of it as I'm getting the money out of the insurance company that I've been paying premiums to for all these years. And I bet it helps my daughters persuade me to receive care sooner because it's going to preserve my independence and it's going to preserve my emotional strength to use consume care since I know that I'm not spending their dollars. 
And I thought that was so compelling and powerful that it's not just about the financial power of long-term care insurance. It's about the psychological and emotional way that it speaks to someone who's older and probably needs support and care, but does not want to admit to it. And it's really smart if we can start owning that for ourselves. In my future, I'm going to be a pain in the neck to my kids and grandkids. One gift I can give them is while I'm still rational and smart and thoughtful, go buy some long-term care. Yeah, great information. We've been joined today by Justin Neal with Northwestern Mutual. If somebody has some more questions about these topics, how can they get in touch with you, Justin? Well, you can check out our website. I think everyone has a website now. I'm pretty sure my dog catcher has a website too these days. But anyways, the the website for us is just my name. It's www.justinneal.com. So justinneal.com, where you can always use that old telephone technology. I know that's pretty dated, but you could also just call us at 770-246-8358. All right, great information. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. Are you aware of the threats and predators that are relentlessly pursuing your assets? Join me, Ted Eccles, in a free virtual workshop where we'll discuss estate planning essentials and protecting your estate. To learn more, visit EccleslawGroup.com and submit your request to take part in one of our weekly workshops. Eccles Law Group is committed to helping you find peace of mind. Vicki has a question. She says, several years ago, my mother passed away, leaving me many family heirlooms. If I want to leave these items to my kids, do I need to include in my will specific gifts of each item designating the child who will receive them? Well, thanks for the question, Vicki. With many families, heirloom items have tremendous emotional value, but may only have a modest fair market value. Nevertheless, making sure these items go to the family member we want to receive them plays an important role in a great estate plan. A primary goal of every estate plan should be to minimize the opportunity for family members to fight with one another. In the past, It's always been necessary to identify specific items in your will and the designated beneficiary in order to have an enforceable designation. However, the law has recently changed. Now, if you want specific items to go to particular beneficiaries and your will does not provide any instruction, you must draft another document. There are two ways for the document to have the effect you want. Each requires various requirements. First, you can incorporate the document into your will. Any document in existence when your will is executed may be incorporated into the will by reference if the will expresses the intent to incorporate that document. And the will must also sufficiently describe the document so it can properly be identified. The other option is with tangible personal property it can be disposed of by a written statement or list. This is only for personal property and cannot include money or real estate, which can't be distributed through this type of document. A written statement or list disposing of tangible personal property must meet three requirements. It must be signed and dated. 
and the document must describe the items and beneficiaries with reasonable certainty. And finally, this document must be referenced in your will. Interestingly, the document may be referred to as one in existence at the time of your passing. It can be prepared before or after the will is executed. You can alter it, but only if you sign and date when any alterations are made. So, Vicki, while the short answer to your question is no, your will does not have to have the item specifically identified inside of that will, you're most likely better off simply including the designations in your will. Any additional document must meet these particular requirements, which creates more room for error and opens up the possibility of disputes with your beneficiaries. Thanks for the question, Vicki. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, go to LegalWiseGA.com. I grew up on a quiet subdivision street with a cul-de-sac at the end. One summer day, I remember sitting in my room and hearing some music from outside on the street. Peering out the window, I saw a van with brightly covered stickers all over it, slowly passing our driveway. I knew immediately what it was, an ice cream truck. While I had never actually enjoyed any treats from an ice cream truck, I suspected that it carried some of the most delicious frozen delights available and perfect on a hot summer day like the one being endured on that particular day. I bolted through the living room, out the door, and down the street to catch the truck and examine the pictures of the available options, including the amount of cash I might need to purchase one. It took me a while to catch the truck and then some more time to thoroughly review the options and their respective prices. And then I returned home hoping to secure the necessary resources to purchase the ice cream when the truck came back by the house. Unfortunately, when I got back home, my mother, who had been searching for me with ever-growing anxiety, was quite upset at my unexcused absence and was in no mood to buy ice cream on that day. But this story does remind me of an important legal principle. From time to time, I will see entrepreneurs setting up grills on street corners or ice cream trucks in neighborhoods, and many of them will not have acquired the necessary business license to conduct businesses in their respective jurisdiction. While their products may be very good and perhaps even quite tempting, like cold ice cream on a hot day, setting up a commercial enterprise without a license may be a violation of local ordinances which could result in the issuance of a citation. From the consumer's point of view, a business operating without a proper license may also not comply with important safety standards otherwise required by your local authorities and may expose unsuspecting customers to potential illnesses and dangers. If you plan on engaging in commercial activity, the best practice is to seek out the necessary permission from your local government to avoid possible criminal prosecution. As a consumer, even though you might want to support the entrepreneurial spirit of the small business by buying their products, you will want to make sure that you're comfortable with their safety standards. As for my ice cream truck fiasco, several days later I did eventually enjoy some ice cream from the truck. While I'm sure the ice cream was delicious, I'm not so sure it was sold to me legally. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, submit it to LegalWiseGA.com.
You've been listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or want more information, contact us at LegalWiseGA.com or give us a call, 770-506-9092. While legal advice can help, we know that true peace is found through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us next week as we answer more interesting questions from listeners just like you. The information... Comments and opinions expressed in Legal Wise with Ted Eccles do not constitute legal advice. The topics discussed and opinions given are general in nature and not intended to create any legal relationship or opinion about specific circumstances. No attorney-client relationship has been or will be formed by any communication or legal discussion, and no representation is made regarding your particular legal rights. For legal advice, contact an attorney actively practicing in your jurisdiction. Thank you.